Hi, this is Robert Schuler with Melissa's Produce, and you're listening in on Cord Vines and Dye. Hello, this is Paul Thorne, and this is, wait a minute, say the name of it again. <laughs> Paul, it's, it's called Cords, Vines, and Dines. Remember having Paul Thorne on our show, Kat? Oh, he's so much fun. We've got to get him again. We, we will. He said he'd do it, and I, we'll have to take him up on it. I'm so thrilled because I've been following his music for well over 10 years now, and we've become friends. And um, I've been hearing him on the radio more and more, and that just makes my heart happy because he deserves it. He he's does just such a it. talent. And you'll notice I'm wearing my Holy Hottie Toddy t-shirt this morning. You are Holy Hottie Toddy. Love everybody. <laughs> that's great we gotta explain what holy hotty toddy means though if those well, people aren't familiar with paul thorne well we'll have to rebroadcast that show uh but it's he says if you are in oxford mississippi and you just walk down the, any street and pass by someone they'll go hotty toddy and it's just it's a greeting <laughs> it's just how they say hello to each other hotty toddy cat well we're gonna have to start that phase up here <laughs> Let's People do. look at us like we're crazy. If we well, just we start are crazy. Saying, well, <laughs> that's I, our handle. <laughs> that's again, holy hotty toddy. All right, so we have um, we have Paul Preston, the movie guy. He's back. Yes, and I love Paul's reviews. His movie reviews are great. He's they, wonderful. They really are. We have Michelle uh, Mandro, and Michelle is the uh, head of Wine Country Women. Mm -hmm. A great visit with her, uh, and uh, we also have a new friend. I, we, I, yep, I'm all set to go up and drink some bubbles oh, with her. Yeah, she's invited us to uh, come see her in the Napa Valley and drink uh, rosé and bubbles. Yes, <laughs> yes. We'll twist your arm, Cat. How about that? Oh yeah, I'm already packing. <laughs> <laughs> and we have uh, Nick Hartatos, who has written a book called No Limits. Of what a fascinating man! Uh, his story is just. Almost impossible. We could have gone on hours with him. E literally hours. But, uh, well, uh, we didn't want to give away the whole book, so we kind of went through the first maybe quarter or first third yeah. of the book. And so you'll get a really good feel for that book. And uh, I'll, I'll just say I think it would make a – if you have a reader on your Christmas list, it would be a, a great gift for them. That's going to be in your holiday gift guide, isn't it? Your Winormous holiday gift guide? It is. That's coming up uh, probably in the next week. Just waiting on one – person to uh, oh contribute. no not sassy mamas are you <laughs> yes just waiting on one person to contribute their photos oh all right <laughs> so shall we get to uh, paul preston the movie guy let's go to paul hello chords vines and dines paul preston checking in with you again for some movie reviews and we're going to move beyond the documentaries I've talked about in the last couple of appearances on the show because we're getting into award season, and so every good thing is coming out of the gate and coming at you fast. They have something called backloading in Hollywood, which is a term I, I've made up because it feels like, you know, you've heard of frontloading. Movie studios tend to backload the year with perhaps too many movies because they count on the short attention span of award season voters. And if the movie came out in February, well, who could remember a movie that came out in February or May? Well, Silence of the Lambs did, and The Gladiator did, and they both won Best Picture. So if your movie's good, I think it, it's going to be there by the end of the year. But nevertheless, they still get a little short-sighted, these studios, and they dump a whole bunch of movies on us at the last month of the year, just before the 31st of December gets here. Now, 
this doesn't bode well for your average Joe moviegoer. Because a guy like me in Los Angeles, yeah, I'm going to see everything, so I'm going to get out there and check it out. But a lot of times when movies get nominated and the Oscar nominations come out, most people are going, what are these movies? Because they just came out in limited release, haven't gone wide yet, and you got to seek them out or you'll miss them. So here are a couple of films you should be out there looking at right now. One of them is Priscilla, Sofia Coppola, who uh, is, of course, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter and had a notorious turn as an actress in The Godfather Part 3, has become this remarkable filmmaker. And uh, she's made another film that's rich in detail with Priscilla, and it wisely takes its time. He's in, even as it jumps around in time, quickly and often, as it covers 14 years of the life of Priscilla Presley, from when she first meets Elvis in 1959 to when she leaves him in 1973. And to me, this is just what I needed after Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. That movie did nothing for me. Despite the fantastic Austin Butler performance in the middle of it, Baz Luhrmann has this ability to make all his films the same way, regardless of what the story requires. And that way is extremely obnoxious to me. But uh, so, and it, here's a fun fact also, if you type in Baz while you're uh, texting someone, the phone will autocorrect it to bad. Not a joke. Anyway, uh, this is the exact opposite of something that just piles on unnecessary quote-unquote style and just tells this story very, very well. Callie Spaney is excellent as Priscilla. Never heard of her. This is certainly her coming out party. Her face plays the 14 years very well, and she looks believable when she's 27 later in the film, uh, or 28, I guess, and her acting does the rest. She's very good, and Jacob Elordi is the latest actor to play Elvis in a long line of actors who've played Elvis. And but his great performance may get lost because the story is essentially about Priscilla and we just saw Austin Butler, but please get a chance to take in his performance and I hope voters remember him when the time comes because he does a very good job of playing the character as opposed to impersonating Elvis. So the character's wants, needs, and boy, those wants and needs are, whew, uh, Elvis... Much like Leonard Bernstein in Maestro, these are, these are two films that are great uh, looks at what happens when you have fame, fortune, and kind of just run on your whims. The whims of somebody who has everything usually leaves people broken in their wake. And that's what this film is about, and same with Maestro. And it has a great recreation of time and place. Uh, they add Jacob Elordi into famous picks and album covers of Elvis's that you've seen before. So uh, this is one worth going and checking out. And don't think to yourself, oh, well, it's a small drama about two people. Nope. All films, in my opinion, should be seen in the big screen. And the music in this film, and music especially in Maestro, needs to overwhelm the viewer. So allow that and enjoy this film in the theaters. Another one you should see in the theater, although it might be too late, is David Fincher's The Killer. This was made for Netflix. Fincher, one of the most cinematic filmmakers out there, has for some reason gotten his films now all on Netflix, which seems very small for a director of his gigantic vision. He made Seven, Fight Club, Panic Room, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I mean, these are big movies. And his newest one is about a very meticulous assassin who, at the beginning of the film, he has this target, and we get led into his head. And it's a fascinating place to exist in the head of a killer who is hired to kill and it's then that you realize oh man we have never gotten enough scripts out of 
Andrew Kevin Walker, who previously wrote Seven for Fincher. So this is an interesting movie that I haven't seen a take on before where we are talked to more by the main character in voiceover of what he's thinking while he's sitting in these uh, places scoping out people to kill or going through the other adventures of the movie. He talks more to us than he does to other characters in the movie. And of course he has a regimen and a timing for everything that happens. So guess what happens? That gets screwed up. Of course, all these people who have, well, I have a certain particular way that I do things. Something goes wrong and he has to spend the rest of the film fixing it. And there goes your danger. There goes your suspense. And all the other things that uh, you want in a Fincher movie all come to the front. It makes for a very entertaining movie. And Fincher's just an exceptional filmmaker. So specific and so over-delivering in production value. You may know he's famous for numerous takes. There was a uh, social network video that uh, was behind the scenes and the opening scene of that film had 99 takes. But man, that 99th take was the one. Rooney Mara said a line differently than she previously had and it was perfect. So the guy is known for these crazy onset, like, you know, exhaustive runs of a scene over and over again. But um, it often pays off and it does here too. So plus he got a great Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score that often works for its infrequency so it doesn't come in much but when it does it's very effective and of course if you like Michael Fassbender as I do he's one of those guys who just hasn't been around for four years thanks to projects getting delayed the pandemic you name it so Tom Cruise I mean when he showed up in Top Gun Maverick I was like wow we haven't seen Tom Cruise in four years same with Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer I was like it's been four years and it's been too long since Fassbender he makes a great return as the head of this film. So The Killer and Priscilla are both out there. Be sure to see them. I can also recommend Dream Scenario and Maestro and uh, definitely The Zone of Interest, although it is uncomfortable. But yeah, tis the season for too many great movies and not enough time to talk about them. But I'll be back next month to do just that. Thanks, guys. Paul Preston, the movie guy on Chords, Vines, and Dines. Doesn't he do a great job, Kat? He does a wonderful job. And, you know, you can also hear him on our friend John Roberts' show. Your Weekly Dose. Your Weekly Dose. And we need to get to the movies one of these days. Actually go to the movie theater and see a movie. We haven't done that since... Since Joni. Joni 75. Right. That was five years, four or five years. How old is she now? She just turned 80, didn't she? Did she? she? I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah, so. it's been and it, 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 that translates to it's been too long. <laughs> I know. I was so surprised when we were there. When we've got the reclining seats Co- and cocktails, and cocktails, <laughs> and boy, I sound like I just came in out of the boonies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do live under a rock. Yeah. <laughs> if I can't watch it on uh, on my fire stick, I haven't been watching anything. <laughs> but anyway, that was. Uh, I love Paul Preston. I'm so glad we were able to get him on yes. Chords, Finds, and Dines. Thanks to Sean Roberts. Hey, let's talk about last weekend. Oh, you Oakland. You had heard about uh, an apple festival? It was an apple butter festival. Apple butter festival in Oak Glen, California. And uh, I had been near there years ago. I thought it was Oak Glen, but actually it was Cherry Valley and had a similar type of thing. That's but just it, below, the yeah, down the hill. It's up near, near Beaumont. So if you go through Cherry Valley, about another, what, what would you say, five miles? Mm-hmm. There's this, uh, it's not really a town. There's just little places where you can kind of pull off on the side of the road. 
And we started seeing cars lined up on the side of the road, and we went, wow, this is big. There's uh, just a little, I think, a little over 600 people that live there. So and our first stop was at a place called, I saw I saw cat wine tasting. <laughs> of course. So little eagle eye there. It's a wine. <laughs> we went to Snow Line Orchard and Vineyard. And uh, brought home a bottle of their Sangiovese. We we did a wine tasting there. The wines were very good, and we also tasted olive oils and balsamic vinegars. Oh and, yes, you got you you've got a. Uh, I got a habanero olive oil, and whoo wee is it hot? Yeah, I I I don't think I tasted that one, did I? I oh, tasted I'm, one of the other ones. I'll let you try. <laughs> no, it's okay. But um, I I got a uh, balsamic vinegar which flavor did you get oh it's just a regular balsamic but okay. it's a heavier one yeah thick thicker yeah, it was good and uh that one i didn't have i'm getting a collection of uh of, of vinegars i got quite a few but we uh stopped at a i don't know it was a resort i guess for lunch but yeah it's a up. camping uh yeah. it's a little camping area and they opened up their parking lot free because they had that little gate, it was open, so you could go in there and park. And then we went into the the restaurant because so we, we were trying to find the Mexican restaurant. Right. There was too many cars around. To but get we them. met a, another. Uh, we met a, a group of three people who were sitting by us and had a nice chat with them. And the food was good. I had the barbecue plate, and I think you did. You have a burger? What did you have? No, I shared the barbecue. Plate oh, that's with right. Them. We shared it. Yeah, which was more than enough. And uh, so we walked right out the back door, and there was a little uh, vendor uh, crafts fair going on. And so we stopped by all the booths. You saw your friend, what's her name, Mary, at Soaring Swine Acres? Yes. Uh, first time I got to meet her. I've talked to her on the phone. Right. And she had asked uh, about carrying my sassy mama's mustards, but it was just too far yeah. for me to get up there all the time. So, uh, But she's got quite a selection in her store. And then we went a little further down the road and we discovered a, a store that really was, its main focus was apples. And uh, one, my sister and her husband grow apples up in Washington State and their favorite apple is called the Mutsu, M-U-T-S-U. And boy, they had tons of Mutsu. And I bought a bag. Yeah, aren't they good? They are so good. Um, I used... Used it for making apple butter, Sassy Mama's apple butter. Right. This week. And, you know, I don't use refined sugar. No. I used uh, monk fruit. But this had, the apples were so sweet, I used very, very little monk yeah. fruit. That's a wonderful apple, nice and firm. And uh, and then we met, I, I guess you just call her mom. <laughs> mom was happy to give us little slices of apple, and then she wanted us to taste her honeys, and she said, you know, I'll humbly say these are this is the best honey in the world. <laughs> and I got a jar of uh, that with the honeycomb. Honeycomb in it, yeah, and it is. It's wonderful. Oh, honey. I go down there and get a spoonful every morning. Yep. It's good. It's mm -hmm. very, very good. So, so that was a fun weekend, and we'll, we'll definitely go back to Oakland, maybe on a non- event weekend where you can actually, so crowded. yeah i want to go to that mexican restaurant that yeah. we were told that uh, was really ogs ogs oakland that's right <laughs> okay we met michelle man mandro michelle mandro this week and uh, i had read a press release about her she heads the wine country women and so we gave her a call and we had a visit and uh, what a nice woman uh, she has so much to say about the role of women in the wine industry, 
And um, like I said, we have an invitation from her to go up to the Napa Valley and hang out and do some tasting. So I'm ready. Okay. I'll go right now. <laughs> All right. I don't know if she'll be right. I think she's in she's, Kentucky. Yeah, I know she's not there. <laughs> I guess I'll just have to go down to the store and get, get a bottle of bubbles for today. Go. It's Sunday. I need I need my bubbles. It is. And uh, th- this will be our last show of the year. We're going to uh, take a break. I, I would say a well-earned one. Yes. Well, i got a lot of Sassy Mamas events coming up. You do. And in fact, next Sunday, I will be at Lorimar Winery for and, their sipping shop. And I'll be with you. You'll be with me. Yeah. Yay. Okay, so let's go on to our visit with Michelle Mandro. Ken, I'm very excited uh, about our next guest, Michelle Mandro. Am I saying it correctly, Michelle? You said it perfectly. Yay. You're, uh, tell, please tell us all about Wine Country Women. You're redefining the industry. Uh, how, how so? Well, we're redefining the industry because um, we were the first and continue to be um, placing, well, we were the first and we were on the forefront, I guess is a better way of putting it, of placing a spotlight on women in wine country. So we uh, started doing that in uh, 2016, 2017. Um, and we have continued to um, do that all these years. We're educating people on um, opportunities that are available to women in the wine industry through placing a spotlight on all these incredible women in the wine industry. Um, and we are trying to sway more women to come work in the wine industry. So we're, we are the only organization that will, um, that allows you to read about, hear from, and meet the extraordinary women in wine country. We do all those things, and that's what makes it really unique. So, um, so we we hope that we will, you know, continue to educate and drive more women to to come work in the wine industry through all the means I just told you about. One of one of my dearest friends, and you may or may not uh, know the name, is Sandy Belcher. I do not know Sandy Belcher, which is always shocking to me. Sandy, Where is she? Sandy uh, is the winemaker for Arns Winery, A-R-N-S, in Napa. Her husband, right. John Arns, is the vineyard manager, and she produces some of the finest Cabernet in the world. I, I am familiar with Arns. I just have never met her. You you must meet. She's just a, a, an absolute dear person, and I'm uh, honored to call her a close friend. Oh, that's awesome. How did you two meet? I live in the Temecula Valley, and as I was awesome. uh, headed into a winery one day, I ran into a friend and said, I'm I'm headed up to Napa. He said, well, you better stop by Orange. He said, you'll love their wines. And I sent an email, and Sandy wrote back and said, please come over. And she had a little uh, plate, plate of goodies, uh, cheese and crackers and salumi. And uh, we started a friendship over 10 years ago, and... Uh, now, anytime I go to the valley and she catches wind of it, she says, you're staying with us. <laughs> That's fantastic. Those are the kind of friends you, you like to have. What kind of uh, positions, jobs, what what do you think? I'm more like on the winemaker, more hands-on with the winemaking. 
You, you mean where are women making the most impact these days? Yeah, that, that's a good yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I will tell you. Um, you know, I think uh, at least when I'm going to give you kind of a long answer. I think when I was going to college and university and all that and starting my career, I never knew that you could work in in wine. You know, and I think. Um, you know, we are doing a really good job at um, educating people about the different career paths that that women have taken that are now working and living in white country. And um, and as a result of that, I think there has been a, uh, a steady growth in California where about 20 percent of the workforce in the wine industry is made up of women and mostly in as winemakers or winery owners. And so we're not quite at 20%. So that's where the largest growth, you know, that's where we're seeing the largest growth is as owners and winemakers. So hopefully uh, in the next five years, we'll get that up to Maybe 30%, and that would be great. That's a lofty goal. That that That's a lofty goal. <laughs> well, I'm working on a TV pilot that um, will showcase women and, uh, and address the evolving roles of women in the industry. So if we can, uh, you know, get that picked up, um, you know, I think that'll just be another way of heightening the awareness of the industry and the women who are working in it and the different opportunities that are available. So um, I think everything that we can do from, you know, sharing their stories in a book to podcasts to events to, you know, to television shows, anything and everything we can do to place a spotlight on um, women in the industry and educate people with what opportunities are available for them, I think is, um, is, is beneficial and will impact, um, the business as a whole. I, I sure would have liked so. it. I would have liked to have known all this when I was in school. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Although I'm not sure I would have liked the biology and chemistry component. I guess more chemistry, but um, but I think if you relate it to to wine, you know, it's an agricultural business. If you but if you relate it to wine, something more sexy than like corn <laughs> or, you know, or wheat, <laughs> you know, I think I think you would immediately get you know enthralled with, it, especially if you you know like wine, right? Grapes it's, are pretty sexy. More, I think so. It's certainly more sexy than bourbon or spirits. It's romantic. Yes, it's romantic. That's a, that's a nice choice of words for sure. At least to me, it seems very romantic and nothing like candlelight and a nice bottle of wine and and somebody you love. I, I, I say that again. I said nothing. Let me go start over again. Uh, to me, it, it seems like uh, nothing better than to have a bo- nice bottle of wine, candlelight, candlelight, and somebody you love. Oh, absolutely. 
that's like the trifecta, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's almost every day in the Napa Valley, right? <laughs> How true. Hey, Michelle, like we're, we're getting ready to uh, transition from fall into winter. What wine should we be drinking this time of year? Well, you know, the holiday season is upon us, and uh, it really doesn't matter if, if it is or isn't, uh, because I am a bubbles girl. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say, you know, sparkling wine or champagnes um, are at the top of my list. But, you know, a good Cabernet on a cold night or a, a nice Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley, uh, you know, is, you know, is good, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bubbles kind of gal myself, along with oh. a good cab. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Well, you know, I like it so much, and I love rosés, too. So I actually have an annual bubbles and rosé event. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> I figured it, there's nothing better than to have events that you really love. So we do two annual events a year. One's International Women's Day, and the other one's bubbles and rosé. So maybe you need to join us, Kat. Oh, I love that. I would absolutely <laughs> adore to go out and do that. Oh. I'm, I'm already I'm already planning it. <laughs> okay, well I'm going to put you on the list. Wonderful. Right, you're a lucky girl. <laughs> yes, I am. Mm. How then about... you get to taste more bubbles. Ah, twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to What do you like to pair with your bubbles, or are you just oh, happy gosh. with drinking them on their own? Pretty much drinking them on their own. Um, I don't know. I can't really say much other than if I'm doing a Sunday brunch. Um, I love to do it with uh, Eggs Benedict. Oh, yes. Um, That's but, good. But other than that, pretty much on its own. Well, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with it on, on its own, but I, it wouldn't hurt my feelings to have a little faux gras or, you know, a potato chip with some creme fraiche and caviar or some crunchy, <laughs> crunchy, uh, French fries, you know, Ooh, crispy, yeah. maybe not crunchy. Um, those are always, always great favorites of mine, too, if I'm going to indulge, right? Potato chips and bubbles, you can't go wrong. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Even popcorn is good with with bubbles. I've never had popcorn so, with bubbles. We'll have to try that. Oh, yeah. And guess what? There's a champagne popcorn now that you can buy. Huh? Really? Wow. I know. I just I just uh, experienced it firsthand and ordered some. So <laughs> I'll have to look. I, you for can that. learn all sorts of things with me. <laughs> What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really like where we're going with this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you some of my favorite sparkling wines uh, right now are. Um, Whitehall Lane makes a spectacular Blanc de Noir, mm. um, which I was surprised to learn. And um, and that's one of my favorites. Um, Crocker and Star makes a great sparkling wine. Uh, Balladucci. I'm always stumbling over them, their name, which is terrible. Um all three of those are family-owned wineries, and I love all their sparkling wine. And that's 
you know, that's not what they are known for. So they're just um, just making these small amounts of sparkling wine that's yummy and tasty. And I think, uh, you know, a, tr- a true treat my any friend, time of the year. My friend Sandy introduced me to Pam Starr this year. Isn't she a delight? She's fantastic. She's fantastic. And I told her she has to invite me to her home. She has a try to grasp this. This this is why I want to go there. She has a trans a transparent home. Huh, okay. Uh-huh. That's what she says. She goes from the sky you could see into her house. And I, I said, Your house well, I have not seen it. Just by your description, it needs to be an architectural digest. It's got bamboo in it and, you know, a lot of bamboo, but it's transparent. I said, so I said, explain that to me. If I'm at the front door, I can see all the way through to the back. She goes, yep. Wow. I'm like, okay. I said that the bathrooms are private, right? She goes, yes, the bathrooms are private. (laughs) Well, you got to draw the line somewhere. Right, for sure. But I'm so intrigued by her home. And and to your point, she is she's a hardworking, extra special lady. And uh, she she makes a lot of great wine, but she makes a small amount of sparkling wine. That it is really tasty. Oh, I'll have to snatch some yeah. of that up. Yes, you need to. You guys need to trek on up to the Napa Valley. You don't need to twist my arm very hard. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> There's absolutely a boys' club in in the wine industry. How are women breaking through that? Uh, well, good question. Uh, you know, certainly the industry has been uh, dominated uh, by men, um, and you know, we are really trying to redefine the landscape uh, and break through that. Um, and I would say that our contribution is is simply our dedication to to educating. You know, kind of goes back to what I was saying before: educating people about um, you know the women that are living in wine country, the positions that they have, the path that they've taken, um, and to really uh, drive more women to come work in the world of wine. Um, so that there can be more, um, you know, equality, if you will. So, um, you know, we were on the forefront of placing that spotlight on women. And now we we want to own driving more women to the industry. So we have a scholarship now that we've established uh, in partnership with the Psalm Foundation to help support women who want to work in the industry. Um, and as I mentioned, we've got this TV pilot. So, you know, we're, we're you know, trying to do everything possible to, to make a difference. Um, I think what a lot of people find surprising um, is that the wine regions that I've been to um, domestically are all very congenial communities um, and I I don't I find that the men that are working in them are very supportive so it's 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 not I don't think it's it's difficult for women to come into the industry to work. I just think um, 
more and more women need to be educated about the opportunities that are available to them and, you know, have mentorship and scholarship programs to help support them pursue those those dreams. So. I love that whole co- idea. The whole concept is great. Michelle, do you oh. think women inherently have a better palate than men? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what that's what they say. They say we have more taste buds. They say we do have more sensitive palates. Um, you know, I certainly want to believe that we do. Um, so I'm going to say yes. Yes, I think I think we definitely bring something different, um, different to the to the business um, and different. Um, you know, we offer different. Um, uh, perspective and yeah we taste the, we taste the wine better <laughs> <laughs> dare i say <laughs> you dare you dare <laughs> i did dare i said it i said it how are wine country women redefining luxury how are we redefining luxury well i i think um we're doing it in two different ways one um I uh, created what I call my domestic trilogy <laughs> um, lifestyle books, which are coffee table size books um, that double as cookbooks. Um, so those books, um, I came out with my very first book, Wine Country Women of Napa Valley and the Fall of 17. I have the worst timing releasing books. <laughs> there were fires <laughs> the Fall of 17. Right. My Sonoma County book came out in March of 2020. There was a pandemic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, our Willamette Valley and and now Walla Walla during the shutdown, I added Walla Walla is I, I pushed off. So we're going to be releasing it in 24. So I'm optimistic that there won't be a pandemic or a fire. So Let's hope. fingers crossed. Right. But um, getting back to your question, Tom, I these books are not only you know beautiful books to ha- have in your home, but they uh, give you a glimpse inside the lives of these women. And each woman is featured with a family, a family uh, recipe, their suggested pairing, and their explanation why that pairing works so well. So the book doubles as a cookbook because it's segmented out that way. So you buy one of my books and you can look like a wine um, expert in front of your family and friends. You can create your own wine dinner at home and you can tell them why these wines work so well with these different dishes and courses, right? So I think that's one way that you can kind of bring a, a wine experience home and, and uh you know, not only experience some great wines and learn about some fabulous women, but create your own wine dinner. And it doesn't have to be a wine dinner. It could be a girl's party and make appetizers and bring, you know, highlight some of the wines that are paired with the appetizers in our books. Um, So I think that's one way. However, if you are planning a trip to wine country, I don't think there's any better way to visit it than to um, then to come to the Napa Valley or Sonoma County and take part in one of my seasonal excursions. <laughs> we would love to do that. 
Uh, well, maybe you should do that. Okay. So um, it's it's a chance to you know. It's a chance to run around with me in a convertible Mercedes Sprinter and oh, enjoy some of my favorite things from wine tasting to dining to a, one of my fun local activities. So um, we have way too much fun. It's limited to eight people. And it's just a unique, great day um, in wine country. So I think, you know, that's a, just a, a luxurious, fun Unique, unique way to to visit wine country. So, so Michelle, you've told us about your books. You've told us about your excursions. How how do our listeners find you? How do they find me? All they have to do is go to our website, winecountrywomen.com. dot uh, com. They can email hello at winecountrywomen.com dot com if they'd like. Um, but a lot of information is on our website. So if you go to the shop page, you'll see our books and um, our International Women's Day events and, um, you know, any kind of events or, or products that are available can be found in our shop page. That sounds wonderful. Now, other than wine, you have a, a love for polo, am I right? <laughs> I do love polo. I, lo- I, love, I love horses. So I consider myself a... Kentuckian, even though I wasn't born in Kentucky, so far it is the place that I've lived the longest um, or spent the most time in, I guess I should say. However, California is is quickly gaining ground. Um, But I fell in love with thoroughbred horse racing. I love to go to a good saddlebred show. And uh, yes, polo matches, I think, are fabulous. And I wish, I wish we had polo in Northern California, but there aren't a lot of polo matches to be found. So I don't, I don't get to get my, my fix in uh, wine country very often. I'm shocked to hear that, that that's not more widely available in Northern California. It isn't. It isn't. So... We have horses, but not polo matches. You'll just have to come down to Southern California for that. (laughs) I know. I understand Barbara has a lot of fantastic polo. Um, And I'm I'm guessing you guys have polo down in your neck of the woods? We have some, yeah. We have some and uh, more towards L.A. There's one in L.A. or up in, in Hollywood. One oh, of the okay. country clubs up there has uh, polo matches. Oh, see, that's great to know, too. I know Santa Barbara for sure. But, um, yeah, so I need to come down to Southern California and, and get my fix. You must, it's you a must. Lot, <laughs> it's a lot closer than Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kat, we've been visiting with Michelle Mandro from Wine Country Women. And, uh, Michelle, I have a feeling we're going to become fast friends. Oh, I certainly hope so. You guys are a lot of fun, and and it's been a great pleasure to chat with you. I know. She's going to be one of my, my newest best friends. A bubble buddy. A bubble buddy. There you yes, go. a bubble buddy. I love that. That's great, Tom. <laughs> I always I always need a bubble buddy. Oh, me too. Thank you so much, Michelle. 
You're welcome. And I hope you guys have a fabulous holiday. You too. Thank you. Didn't you love uh, visiting with her? I've got to go get some bubbles today. (laughs) I need my bubbles. (laughs) So winecountrywomen.com, I believe that was the website, right? Yes, yes. Anyway, so, um, and she is sending me a a book uh, about uh, women uh, in Napa Wine Valley. So that's going to be in the She's going to meet your friend, Sandy. Sandy Belcher, yes. Yep, she's going to look her up. Hey, Kat, you know what time it is? It must be the game of food. It must be. Pick two cards. Any uh, two cards. I got a jack of hearts and a queen <laughs> of spades. Okay. No. Okay. You ready? Sure. I got regional dishes or ingredients. Which one do you want first? Uh, regional. All right. What method of preparation is key to a proper mission-style burrito? A, toasting the rolled burrito on a griddle until crisp. B, steaming the tortilla before rolling the burrito. C, topping the rolled burrito with chili sauce. Or D, dipping the tortilla in hot chili oil before rolling the burrito. Okay, I'm pretty sure that the Mission Style Burrito is from the Mission District in San Francisco. And I lived in San Francisco for many years and went to the mission to have burritos so i may be wrong but i'm pretty sure it's steaming the tortilla you're right yeah steaming the tortilla before rolling the burrito i always do that yeah so we'll have to go up to the we have so many we can go up to uh, san francisco on our way to the napa valley to meet michelle yes we'll stop in the mission and i'll we'll have a mission style burrito okay sounds good cooking tools and techniques is your category if your goal is light, fluffy French fries or mashed potatoes, which of these spuds is the best starting point? A. Yukon Gold, B. Fingerling, C. Russet, or D. Red skinned potatoes? Gosh, and I use all four of those potatoes at some point, but I'll go with <gasps> A. Yukon Gold? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Russet? Russet. <laughs> yeah, that was... The obvious. Yeah, I thought it was too obvious, mm-hmm. but that's what... Actually, I've been using um, red potatoes. Red potatoes and the fingerlings that we get from Melissa's. Well, I've been making mashed potatoes with the red, mm-hmm. with the skins, because oh, the so skins good. are yeah. so good. So, okay, uh, ingredients. Okay, hit me. In ancient Mexican agriculture, the three sisters are a trio of staple food crops that all support one another's growth. Which of the following is not one of them? Okay. Corn, A, corn, B, chilies, C, beans, or D, squash? D, squash. Eh. Okay. It's B, chilies. Well, really interesting. People and pop culture. In 2019, hurling this food at politicians became a viral act of protest in the United Kingdom. Is it A, cream pies, B, jammy dodgers, (laughs) C, milkshakes, or D, jellied eels? Ew. Oh my God. Now who would know that if you don't live there? I mean... (laughs) Um, let's go with jellied eels. Milkshakes. 
milkshake. Oh, that's really messy. <laughs> I didn't think they'd be that messy. Milkshakes. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, if you really, I was looking at Wine Enthusiast uh, magazine, and they've got a really good article on California Riesling is on the rise, and here's why. And they give you a good explanation and uh, a list of really 10 All-American Rieslings for $26 or less. Okay, we'll have to do some research. And um, so I'm just saying if anybody's interested, get a hold of the Wine Enthusiast. Yeah. And read up on it. Or I was going to say get a hold of us and donate a bottle. <laughs> so, Kat, I'm very selective in Christmas music that I like. And I've made a mix of hundreds of Christmas songs, and I pride myself that it doesn't contain Holly Jolly Christmas. It doesn't contain <laughs> the Chipmunks. It does, and they're all great songs. But, but you grew I, up I'm, with the Chipmunks, didn't you? Yeah, but I don't need to. I've heard them enough. <laughs> so, Alvin! Uh, <laughs> one of my favorites, though, is uh, Father Christmas by uh, Greg Lake from Emerson Lake and Palmer. And our uh, mutual friend, Rob Miller, does such a good job on that song. So I thought, uh, you, and, you and I both thought, I'll give you credit, that uh, we should play that because it's getting to be that time of year. It certainly is. And I can never get enough of Rob Miller's music Ugh. anyway, but this song is absolutely beautiful. We'll have to have him on as a guest. Again. We we will. I'll grab him. He's hard to get a hold of, yes, but he's I'll elusive. grab him. He's elusive. <laughs> well, shall we get into Rob Miller? Let's do it.
He's amazing. Rob Miller. I can't wait to see him again. I haven't seen him perform in a while, but he's playing at all the wineries with uh, our friend Steve Hager as Two Two Fish. Fish. Used to be Blue Fish when it was a full band, and now it's Two Fish. That's right. Well, he did really did justice to uh, uh, Greg Lake's song. And there was a video out with that song. Oh, nice. I'd like to see it. I did it. I made. I did the video. I would like to see it. So, shall we get into our uh, next guest, Mr. Nick Heritatos? Yes, his book, and I'll read a little bit of the on the back cover. The book opens during the Nazi occupation of Greece. No Limits is a true life adventure story of Nick Heritatos, from his humble beginnings in war torn Greece to Southern Africa. So. And we went through, like you said, about a third. Yeah, maybe. And uh, like I, we were talking, I said, uh, well, your book covers a journey through three continents, and we've touched on two. So, yeah, it's just uh, I, I can see why he was compelled to write a book. I think a lot of people said, Nick, you've got to write a book. And he said, yeah. It's- yeah, we didn't go through the whole book because we want to have our listeners buy the book and finish it up. Exactly, so. exactly. So let's get in with our interview with Nick. All right. Kat, I'm so happy that we have Nick Heritatos with us as our guest. Uh, Nick, you've written a book called No Limits. It's a true story of challenge and courage across three continents. It's an incredible book, Nick. It took me four years to write my book. And by the way, I wrote it four times. Okay. (laughs) Tell me about that. And... um, we made it, I made it in such a way to be politically correct and also to be with reality of life of today, especially when you live in the United States and a lot of events, uh, two-thirds of events happen outside the United States. So some people here don't understand or they're not really very well informed with what is happening in the other parts of the world, especially in Africa. And I wanted to make it very easy and very simple for everyone to understand exactly my book. It is 100% true story. Nick, before we get into the book, I wanted to talk about your foreword. It was written by Jack Canfield, and I had the distinct pleasure of meeting Jack and Mark Victor Hansen before they had published the first uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul series. How did you and Jack connect? I met Jack through my publisher. And Jack was one of the first people actually to read my book. Uh, when it was on the sort of initial stages. And when he read the book, he was so impressed that he wanted to interview me for his different platforms and his YouTube channels. Um, Your audience can actually watch my interview with Jack Canfield and um, just also to mention a few others by going to my website, nolimitsbynick.com. Terrific. Kat, I know you want to say hello to Nick. Hi, Nick. I'm so glad to have you on our show. we kind of met through a mutual friend, Michelle Murata, and her show. And her, your interview uh, with her is just absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. And thanks for everyone who is listening. 
Your story uh, in No Limits begins actually before you were born uh, with the Nazi occupation of Greece. And your dad, Baba, ran a bakery. How did that impact his business and uh, prove his resourcefulness? Well, um, yes, that is true. My dad actually um, was a master baker. And uh, just before the Second World War, there was a rumors that um, the Italians would join Hitler to be the Axis. And what happened is um, Greece is very close to Italy. And there was rumors that they were preparing to invade Greece. But the Italians disputed those rumors and rejected the rumors. And in fact, they started a war with Greece before actually declaring. They did not declare a war. They just attacked. So uh, my dad was uh, 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 ordered, him and his brother, to fight the Italian forces of northwest of Greece. And um, he left the bakery that he was managing, and um, he was wounded fighting the Italians on the, on the just south of Albania, northwestern mountains. And um, for six months, 170,000 uh, of Italian forces could not penetrate the Greek defenses. So Hitler um, realized that the Italians are not performing because he wanted Greece as a key uh, country for the Mediterranean especially for the Middle East, and to control the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea. So he sent the German mechanized divisions to help the Italian forces. And finally, after the first six months, from 1940 to beginning of um, probably middle of 1941, um, the Italians could not penetrate and take not even an inch, despite having um, two soldiers to one, 175,000 to about 80,000, 85,000 of, of Greek uh, defend, defenders. So um, Germany, after about uh, two and a half, three months fighting, they penetrated the Greek defenses with the mechanized divisions and uh, finally, <clears throat> they uh, overrun and took control of Greece. And it took them overall probably about nine months from the time they started. It was a brutal war, but uh, my dad was wounded and uh, he came back and with uh, bandages, but he was ordered again to go back to the front lines and fought. And when he came back, after the Germans uh, took Greece over, his bakery was actually uh, commandeered by the Nazis to produce bread for the army in the, the city of Patras on southwest, or should I say, west part of Greece. And um, 
he was not allowed to do anything with anybody in terms of uh, selling bread to anybody else. It was strictly for the the, net, the Nazis uh, uh, soldiers around the city and other smaller cities in a radius of about 100 miles. He had about 16 people working there. And um, my dad it was a very, very loving person in terms of helping neighbors and helping a lot of people. He used to, um, the, the, Italian, the, the Germans used to give them so much flowers, flour, so much uh, salt, uh, oil, whatever they needed. And he had to made to make so many loaves of bread, so many thousand loaves of bread a day, because they had quite a big uh, army in Patras. Patras was the third Greek city in terms of size, about half a million people. So it took quite a lot of uh, battalions to actually uh, control the city and the outlying areas. So my dad wanted to help his um, neighbors. And what happened is uh, the, the machines, he had 16 people working, the machines of the bakery were, you know, need to be oiled every time because they worked a lot. And the dough, uh, the dough, you know, when you make from the flour, you tend, before you make bread, you make it into a dough and that you let it prove two times. And then um, some of the dough, when they go through the machines, they get dirty when they reach the grease of the oil. And of course, the Germans don't want to have any bread that has any uh, any information or any uh, any signs of um, being abused, because they they were always watching how the bakery it's done, how the bread was done, because he could have easily poisoned the whole thing, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, he had a, a sidecar, two uh, two German soldiers every day will go, go home, pick up my dad, take him to the bakery, and they will bring another two soldiers will bring him back on, on the sidecar with the, with the bike and drop him back home. So, so to cut the story short, he was actually taking that doll that was dead, put it around his waist, over the shirt, and he will bring it home. And my mom will actually cut it in, in pieces and stealthily give it to the neighbors. So that was very difficult and very dangerous. And finally, the Gestapo find, it, find out about it. And one morning, about 2 o'clock, they came to the home, broke the door down, took my dad, put him chains, handcuffs, and took him for immediate execution. When the the, the motorbike came in the morning <clears throat> to pick him up. My mom told them the story. And um, eventually, there was nobody to open the bakery. The people that worked there waited, waited, and waited. And my dad was already in jail. And therefore, um, it was very difficult for him because, like enough, what he did uh, prior to his... Um, this situation, he actually um, had a very good communications with uh, a colonel 
a German officer that actually uh, was in charge of the bread and all the other food supplies for the German uh, army. And uh, when you come, to, when he used to come to the bakery, my dad would make him special bread and you know treat him with respect, and treat him very well, and they build some sort of a, a relationship. So eventually, the the people in the morning somehow the the, the guards who took my dad back and forth approach the guy the guy, the guy who was in charge of the of the jail and asked him to release because he was the guy who made the food and the, the bread. So he, they were not interested. They say he was a criminal. He did this thing. He must be executed. Finally, the, the uh, kennel find out. And um, again, the jailers did not want my dad to leave. So he took a jeep uh, with um, two jeeps, actually, with uh, six soldiers per jeep. And it went to the to jail, and they demanded my father's immediate release because if there were no bread that day, they would have blamed the kennel, and his that would be his problem, his baby. And actually, there was a sort of a, a refusal to open the the cage of my dad, and he took his pistol out, shot the the lock, and um, they took my dad out took him to the bakery, and he kept some of his soldiers the whole day. It was uh, by three o'clock that afternoon, my dad actually produced the bread and delivered to them, and instead of probably by nine or ten. But he survived, and um, he told this story to me a few times. And actually, that's actually one of the things that uh, shaped my life. Uh, to see my dad doing these things, fighting for his country, injured, go back, fight again, come back, help his neighbors under such a difficult circumstances. And then be caught by the Gestapo. And if they killed him, I wouldn't be here today to tell my story. Nick, that's uh, that's truly a remarkable story. And uh, I think your dad's resourcefulness certainly uh, helped shape your life, don't you think? Yes. Yes. Actually, um, yeah, my, my dad was a hero. Yes. Yes. What age did you know that you wanted to be in business? How old were you? Well, after... Uh, the Germans and the Italians left when the Second World War was uh, done, and I was born after that. And when I was about eight years old, my school that I went, it was about 15, probably 15 blocks away from the bakery. So after I, fin I used to finish school, I used to like to go to see the bakery to wait for my father to finish so we can walk together home. And, you know, I saw how he was uh, taking care of everybody. You know, the, he had, as I said, about 18 people there working. He was the manager. He didn't own the place. But everybody was looking at him because the owner 
didn't really run the business. My dad was basically the boss there. And um, saw these people, uh, you know, working and everything else. The, the people on the front, they would say, how, you know, how's this? How, how are you doing, Nico? And because in, in Vic, my name was actually Nico. So um, I would see all these things and it, it actually excited me. At that time, I thought, you know, I like to, to get involved in business. But that is where, uh, you know, it was sort of, I start thinking maybe, you know, owning your own business is good. But there is a few other things down the line that you will see as we go along that I will explain to you my final decision. But right now, at that age, at eight, that's how I thought. You know, I saw everything and I thought also it was easy. But, uh, well, it's not so easy, but at that age, everything was easy. <laughs> so. But I, I wanted to go always to visit my dad uh, every day because I was enjoying it. And also um, pastries, you know, those days the pastry was very good. They taste very nice. So after school, <laughs> it was nice to have few. Oh, that's, so, yeah, that, that's, that's my story there. That's wonderful, Nick. Boy, there was a lot of turmoil in Greece um, after that, and uh, it, it was becoming almost intolerable. You didn't uh, your dad, Baba, decided to move to Rhodesia to see if that would be a good place for your family, right? Yes. Uh, what actually happened um, in Greece? There was a civil war after the Second World War, and. Um, my dad lost his brother because of the different ideologies. And uh, my dad was very disappointed and very disenchanted. He said, here it is us. We fought the Italians and the Greeks together. And the, sorry, the Italians and the Germans together. And Greeks killed other Greeks because the one side was pro-communists, uh, supported by the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc at that time, because they basically controlled the, the whole of the Balkans at that time, and they wanted also Greece to, to become a satellite of um, Russia and the Eastern Bloc. But from the other side, you had the conservatives that they wanted to remain with the, the West, and Britain in, in particular, Britain has long associations with Greece. You may know that Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth, was actually a Greek prince. And uh, they always were interfering. The, the, the British were always interfering with uh, Greece. They wanted them to be always on their side. And also the US helped a lot. Um, and therefore, there was this a civil war going on and uh, for five years so it was uh, whatever was left from uh, doing the things with uh, with the germans and the italians uh, it was just the same and bad killing and everything with the the uh, civilian war the civil war which uh, it was actually very bad and uh, basically they had two wars or three wars should i say the italians germans and then the civil war so it was very very bad at the end of the day and what happened also um the europe at that time was basically destroyed just about everything everybody italy 
Germany, all the other countries were destroyed. Even London was bombed a lot of times um, by the Germans. So um, there were not so much work for everybody. And the fact that my dad was disappointed, disenchanted with what happened to his brother, his only brother, he decided to leave Greece. So, um, so that's why he left and went to Rhodesia, which it was also a British colony, and um, he wanted to get out of Rhodesia to do something, not just for him, but I think the family as well. He put his life for us, and I have always told him, thank you for, for doing this for us. So a year later, Nick, your your family followed uh, him to Rhodesia. Tell me about your your first memories of when you got off the plane in Rhodesia. Uh, what, what it felt like, what it smelt like, what it uh, what were your initial impressions? Um, well, first of all, um, when we went to Rhodesia, you know, those days there were no jets. We we flew with a uh, propeller. Driven aeroplanes and a, a plane, um, American plane made by Lockheed, Lockheed Super Constellation. And of course, we didn't have the luxury that we have today that we fly from one continent to the other within eight to 10 hours because the speed was less. So we, it took us, uh, I think, about 48 hours or something like that, or should I say two days to arrive there. And, and we had quite a few stops on the way to, to gas. Uh, but when we, I came out of uh, the plane uh, and, on, uh, from the Rhodesian capital, um, it was December, and December, the southern hemisphere has the opposite weather than what we have here. It's the middle of the summer. So when I got out and tried to walk on the tarmac, because, you know, those days they didn't have the, you had to work from there to the terminal. The, everything looked different, you know, the, the smell of the air, the smell of the air was different. The heat, there was a lot of heat uh, in comparison to, you know, what uh, we, we knew in, in Europe. The greenery was different. People were different. Buildings were different. The soil was different. Animals, there were different animals than what we get in Europe. And um, the other thing that surprised me was that the cars was driven on the other side of the road. <laughs> so when we cross the road, we have to be very careful how we cross because we we didn't look from the way we look here. We look on the opposite side, and sometimes you forget when you're at that stage, so you can do crazy things. And um, yeah, so it was uh, quite uh, quite uh, uh, different. And um, but it was exciting because the 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 country was young, um, very energetic, very uh, busy, very wide. The buildings were more stretch out the others bigger homes than in europe where they're very close very tight so it was completely different and 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 not so tall so it was sort of a different more easy to move so to speak and different languages too right yes of course different language they spoke uh, english first of all because it was an english colony and then within the population there there were two different tribes that they spoke two different languages between themselves. And also there was a language that they, between the whites and the blacks, that they talked together, the white people and the black people. So there were actually 
three languages on top of English. So I had to learn fast uh, English. And then um, I actually learned the other three languages. And I will explain to you down as we go. And you ask me different questions as we go through the book. I will, I will explain to you. But um, yeah, that was uh, it was quite difficult to start with. But at the same time, there was that excitement that you wanted actually you come into a new country and and everything is new you you know people are different and you have to sit there digest all these things that come to you now by the time you arrived in Rhodesia your dad had started and established a very successful bakery isn't that true yes my dad as i say he was a master baker because his family they were bakers and millers and he, within I think six months when he arrived there, he became a, he, uh, him and somebody else got the uh, bought a bakery, fifty fifty percent each, and um, when we arrived there, he already um, had his own bakery with his partner, and uh, it was a little bit different than in Greece because he, uh, you know, he. Well, the bread, the way they make it in Odisha was a little bit different than Greece. Everything was different in the bakery because they were producing more, bigger, you know, different type of bread, um, similar to what we have here, the sliced and all that stuff. And um, he was already on his way. He was uh, really doing very, very well within um, the time that he left from, from Greece. He was there for 18 months before we arrived. I know that you noticed there was an issue with the way the trucks were scheduled. How old were you when you decided that there was a better way to do that? What did you come up with? Oh, you mean from the bakery? Yes, from the bakery. Okay. So when we arrived when we arrived in, in Rhodesia, uh, we were leaving the bakery that my dad owned 50% was in a, in a town in a city called Artley. It was in the in the middle of of Rhodesia. They call it Midlands. Uh, he had uh, 50% on this smaller town, but he had an opportunity to buy a, a bigger bakery in another town about 30 miles away, but bigger, two, three, four times bigger than Hartley. And um, he had an opportunity to buy 100% to own it. So he decided it may make sense to go for that because the baker is bigger. He knew that he makes a very good bread. He produced fantastic bread. You could smell the bake, the bread actually about three three to four blocks away. It was unbelievable. Mm. And so I, I'm he, salivating bakery, already. <laughs> yes, the 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 bakery, this particular bakery, this the second one, was run very badly. The person who had it was very sick, and his poor wife was trying to hold the fort while he was sort of dying, so to speak. And uh, there, there were quite a few people in there about at that time, probably about 20, 25. So the equipment was old. Everything was old. Everything was basically, you could feel it. But my dad had a different idea. He could see what he can do on this big city. And he knew that he could produce the best bread. He looked at the bread that they were making. They were not producing good bread at all. And uh, that excited him, and he sat down with us and said, um, and I'd like to um, 
move away from from Parkley. I'd like to buy this big bakery, um, but we need to do a lot of work. We're going to do a lot of work. We need to make it make it happen. So um, the family decided to support him. So he sold his share to the of the fifty percent, and he bought the other bakery for um, for one hundred percent. But we had to do a lot of work. I helped him there too to clean up the place. Took, it took us probably about five months, four or five months, while the bakery was running to clean up, make you know, put new equipment, new new ovens, new this, new that. So he did quite uh, quite a lot of remodeling. And uh, the bakery within that bakery within three years was producing seventy five percent of the city's bread. And the other four bakeries, they used to do probably 35% of the production. He increased the business quite a lot, and uh, it was quite nice. Now, having saying this, um, when you start uh, stretching and, and changing things from the previous owner to the new owner, um, you leave some things behind because, you know, the, the buildings are not all fitted. He didn't start to build a new building and new bakery completely. He had to actually remodel what he had and make it with what he had, with the money he had and the time he had and the things he wanted to do. So we overgrow very quickly. And uh, I used to go to the bakery. And my dad never asked me to go. But every time I went to the bakery, it was very busy place. Very busy place. And I had some ideas. I went there and I thought, sometimes I'll see two, three trucks waiting on the line until the one gets out. And I thought to myself, you know, why are they doing it this way? You know, my dad was so busy with the bread inside, they didn't thought of all these things. And we, have, we had, uh, at that time, we started having, originally we had three vans. And at that particular time that I sort of joined in the right way, we had eight. So I would see we had to load eight vans and then we had to, uh, offload the flour that comes, the sugar, the oil, and all that stuff, in and out, load offloading, a lot of people in and out. And I thought, you know, we can do something better here. And so these people, you know, with the trucks waiting. So I, I decided to go to my father and I said, you know, that if we can do this, do that, do this, you know, we will do quicker. We can load and offload quicker. And especially for our guys in the morning when we load the eight vans, we can do it better. We can not only load, but prepare the, the, the bread and the pastries, have a special uh, dispatch section that all the bread, as it comes out from the oven, we put them into these places, and then it's very easy from there to load the trucks. So we change the whole thing around, the whole of the um, dispatch section over the period of time, based on my suggestion and recommendation, and it worked very well. That, that's really amazing, Nick. And, and not long after that, you decided to get into business for yourself and you wound up buying the Mambo Cafe. What, how, what yeah, prompted so, that? Yeah, so while I was um, starting you know, to think about a bakery, um, and the, as the business grew bigger and bigger, I um, thought to myself, you know, I saw all these people coming in, I saw all these trucks, people coming in and out. Um, I thought to myself, man, this is good. I like to own my own business. I, own, I like to own my own business. And yeah, and the sooner the better. At that time, I was going to school, and I 
used to come and help my dad in the afternoon. I mean, he had people. It was I wasn't making the bread as such. Although I got involved because I wanted to do as a young boy, I wanted to see how they make it and everything. I asked questions. Sometimes I was actually a bit of a nuisance to ask everybody there this and that, you know, as a young man. But um, I liked it so much that people went in and out in the bakery with people talking to each other, Lord, off Lord, running here, running there. It, it just excited me. It, it excited me so much that I wanted to, there and then I decided to buy my own business as soon as possible. So while this was going on, I thought, okay, if I can find a business to work with what I do, and I will buy it. Now, well, I didn't realize that there is more complications than this. And let me explain. So, as, um, as I was looking around, I noticed there was uh, one business that came up for sale called Mambo Cafe. And this particular business had six uh, people inside there. And the owner used to bring um, the inventory in and collect the money. In other words, the manager will write what you wanted today for delivery tomorrow or the day after. The owner will bring it in in the evening, bring all that inventory in, collect the cash, pick up the new order for the next one. So to me, I, I thought to myself, I like to buy this business because it's 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 it wasn't very far away from home. It was like probably five blocks, six blocks, eight blocks. And I can do that, you know, I can. But I didn't realize at that time, uh, I was 16 years old, and I had a little bit of money uh, that I saved from my dad used to give me, um, and I kept it because I, as a young man, I was a very responsible person. I never drank, um, didn't do crazy things. I was very, very responsible. I, I got injured earlier. Uh, in Greece, when I built my one one homemade car, and that actually made me think when I was injured and lie down and wait, you know, to 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 heal, I thought to myself, you know, I have to come up with new ideas. I have to become more responsible, and don't put anybody in in, in danger. That actually changed my life. So, at that time, I said, okay. Why can't I buy this business? And what can I do to buy this business? So I said to myself, okay, if I can if I can pay a deposit or a down payment with the owner and pay the balance over the period of three years out of the profits of the of the business, I should buy. So I went to see the owner and he says to me, Do you want it for you or for your dad? I said, No, 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 it's for me. He says, for you? I say, yeah. If I give you this kind of money down, that's what I have. I can give it to you, and then I'll pay you the balance. Uh, he done some investigation. He probably find, realized, you know, my family was a good family to do. Uh, he used to also buy bread from us from for the for this uh, restaurant. This particular place called that called Mabukefi had um, making food and also sell groceries. So, to cut the story short, I bought the business, agreed with him, signed the contract, but near the end, I realized that I can't get a license in my name because I was 16 years old, 
or sign the contract or even open a bank account with the checks and everything because those days there were no credit card it was cash or checks so I said, oh my goodness now what am i going to do so i went to thought well let me go and talk to my mother because my father was already busy with you know with his business i didn't want to bother him a lot but i asked him if he thought um this business for me to buy he looked at me and says you want to buy a business i say yes then he says to me well are you sure you want to buy a business Wait, ask me twice i say yeah yes he says then what are you waiting go for it you know everything's possible go for it he probably thought i wasn't going to buy it i don't know <laughs> but anyway so so i i you know that was the obstacle number one i over uh, it was so easy. The obstacle was very good. I jumped it so quickly with closed eyes. <laughs> but then when when, when the, the real serious now came, I thought, you know, okay, let me go and talk my, to my mother and see if I can put the business in her name and ask her to sign the checks. So when I arrived, you know, when I told her about it, she says, what? What are you saying? Nico? I said, mom, this is what I'm telling you. I want to buy this business. She looked at me and says, how are you going to go to school? Help that in the bakery, and you're going to run this business. How are you going to do it? He said, Mom, this is very easy. It's got already six people. I'm not going to run the business. I'll do the same. What the previous owner do? I'll take the stuff in the evening there, take the money, and let it run as it is. But the place doesn't look so good. It needs some remodeling. We'll get it better, make better service and we can do it because the person we had it yet is like 15 years and i thought to myself if he's got it for 15 years surely the business must be good so my mom looked at me and she says you know i don't get involved with the business i said mom you're not going to get involved with the business at all this business have these people and everything i'll do the same what i want you to do is put the thing in your name I will fill up all the forms for you to apply for license, open the bank accounts and everything else. I will bring you the checkbook because those days they used to have checks for 200 or 100 uh, checks. I will bring you, you just sign the checks and I don't have to bother you until the next checkbook. She says to me, that's all you want me to do? I say, yeah, that's all, ma'am. She says, are you sure? He said, I say, ma'am, yes. She says to me, okay, I will help you. But says, this is your baby. I don't want you to call me to come there and do it. Mom, I say, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> Just sign those checks and, and you sign on the bottom of the forms that I'm going to fill for you. So, so Nick, your, your story is one of overcoming one obstacle after another. And then uh, this was just the beginning for you of getting into business. You wound up buying uh, Ngezi Trading uh, right out of high school. Yes. Yes, so so this business it, it was it done so well that I paid the the owner his money. We actually became very good friends. He, he told me how I handled it. So that this business done so well for me at that young age that three years later I actually bought the Ngezi Trading, which it was two and a half times bigger than the first one because they had fourteen people. And it was three departments. You know, it wasn't just one. It was three departments. And um, that was really also very, very good. That three years after that, the both these businesses made me 
good money that I went to my dad because I saw the bakery by that time. My dad, it was almost 10, 12 years since he bought it. That, you know, he didn't want to put any new equipment more. You know, by that time he was a bit older. He didn't want to change things. And I offered to give him to buy the bakery, me and my sister. And uh, so, so much so that the business made, these two businesses made enough money to buy 50% of my share, 50% of the bakery, my dad's bakery. That's It's a truly remarkable story, and we really have just scratched the surface. Um, I think this is going to be a good uh, segue into a, a second interview with you, Nick, because there's, like I said, we've just barely begun. Yes, that is true. This is just the beginning, for sure. And uh, your story is uh, challenges across three continents. We've we've done two now, so we still have another continent to go. Uh, actually, <laughs> yes, and it's it's actually even on, on that continent, it's it's still the beginning. There's a long way down the line. There's a lot of things. You know, Nick, when I listen to you talk about your, you know, describing all the the details of your life, I do see a movie in in there. Uh, I had a whole visual going in my brain, the way you described everything, and I could see that it could be a great movie. A wonderful movie. Yes, we want to make a blockbuster movie. <laughs> Indeed. Again, yes. the book is called No Limits, A True Story of Challenges and Courage Across Three Continents. Nick Heratatos is the author, and uh, I just have to say this would make a wonderful Christmas gift. That is true. That is true. It's it's uh, actually, uh, it's, uh, it is a, a, real, a real true story, and uh, people can go to my website, and they can see... No limits by Nick.com. Wonderful. Nick, I cannot thank you enough for your time, and uh, we look forward to visiting with you again in the near future. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure, and I wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Pretty fascinating guy, isn't he, Kat? Oh, it's incredible. Um, I've, I've only started the book. I haven't finished it myself yet, so I know you read it, and it's just incredible. And our thanks to our friend Michelle Morata, who uh, who does Studio City now. Her that's her podcast. She yes. introduced us. And uh, can't wait to finish the book. And and you said too, this book is on your holiday gift guide, the Winormous Holiday Gift Guide. And where can people find that? Winormous dot com. W i n e o r m o u s. Winormous dot com. You've had Winormous for a long time. Two thousand nine. So fourteen wow. years. Wow. Yep. I haven't been over on your site in a long time. I'll have to go over and check it out, see what's going on. Do do so. Okay. Well, Tom, let's wrap this up for the year. That's it. <clears throat> we say farewell to 2023. Yes. And we'll see you next year on Chords, Vines, and Dines. And it's been a wonderful year. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Kat. I, I love, love you. you. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Robert Rankin Walker here with Cords, Vines, and Dines. So excited to be talking to you guys.